Good afternoon. Good to see you here at the EU Public Meeting. If I haven't met you before, for some reason, my name is Rowan Kemp. Uh, I lead the staff team here at the EU. Really glad you could come and join us this particular day. It's nice, frankly, to be inside on a day like this, and I hope that just being inside does keep you warm. But more all, I hope that as we look at God's Word, it actually warms your soul. You actually get a better vision of the Lord Jesus. You understand God better, the one true living God, and that it actually warms your heart as you actually stop to remember Him in the midst of the busy end of semester. Now, just because there's still some people coming in, maybe it might be good if you've got some spare seats and you're near the middle, if you can sort of shuffle in just to create some space on the edges, that might be nice if you could do that. A way of caring for those who are rushing to get here. Who's heard this phrase before? Faith is blind, or the phrase blind faith. Who's heard that before? Many people, exactly. I think our world, our world, by which I mean the, the world that by and large doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't call themselves Christians, uh, doesn't believe in the one true living God, who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think our world loves this phrase, that faith is blind. It loves the very notion of blind faith, by which they mean faith that is a leap into the dark. Faith that is a leap into the dark with no rational justification. That's what they mean by blind faith. And our world loves that notion. I think our world loves the notion that faith is blind for two reasons. First of all, you know, it's somewhat romantic. It's somewhat romantic that you would throw yourself at something without any rational justification and, and give yourself wholly to this thing. I mean, frankly, that's what many people do in their relationships, isn't it? That's why we love it. That's why it's called romance. It is a somewhat romantic notion that despite whatever justification there may not be, I will do this, I will thrust myself, throw myself at this one. And so there's something sort of romantic, something almost supra-rational about faith that our world actually says that's nice. What's more, though, because it is supra-rational, because it's not with a rational justification, it's somewhat comforting. Because what that means is I can just annex faith to my life. Because I live my life pretty much on, usually on rational justification, rational means. So I can take faith, annex that to my life with no clash. Because whatever is the rational way I live my life, faith, because it's not based on reason, not based on rationality, I can just annex it and that's fine. So it's quite a comfortable thing. That if faith is blind, that's, that's easy then, to have faith. What's more, the second reason our world loves it is because if that's true, that faith has no rational basis, what it means is that your faith has no call over my life. Because your faith is not based on reason. It's not based on rational, objective sort of grounds. It's just subjective. And hence, it has no claim over my life. And frankly, I like that. Because... That preserves my personal freedom. That preserves me in absolute sovereignty. So I think our world loves the fact, or loves the claim, that faith is blind. Now I come to you today as a speaker for the EU public meeting as a committed, professed evangelical Christian. What that means is that I agree that faith is blind. I agree faith is blind but only in a particular sense. 
See, I have to agree that faith is blind because the New Testament says things like this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and being certain of what we do not see. Faith is being certain of things that we do not see. Do you see Jesus, the risen Lord, ruling over this world? Do you see that? No, you don't see that. But faith is being certain of the things you do not see. So there is a level at which faith is blind, isn't it? It's not based on sight. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, We live by faith and not by sight. We live by trust, trust into the very things that we actually we cannot see. So there is a sense in which faith is blind because it's not based on sight. However, I would suggest to you that just because Christian faith is not based on sight, it doesn't mean it is baseless. Christian faith does have a rational justification for believing. But it's just not based on sight. It's based on authoritative testimony. That is the basis for our faith, authoritative testimony. So yes, I might agree that faith is blind, but I don't agree that it is baseless. Not at all. I'll give you an example about authoritative testimony. Uh, My grandmother who was born a very long time ago. My grandmother passed on many years ago now. My grandmother was actually born in the 1890s. Um, She married late, had kids late. My father married late, had kids late. So, you know, we span centuries, literally, just in three generations. Anyway, my grandmother played the piano in the silent movies. Now, you may not be familiar with how silent movies work. It's called silent because it didn't come with a soundtrack. It's just pictures, right? And so you had a person down the front sitting at a piano watching the movie and making stuff up. You played out of the repertoire in your head. There was no score to play with the pictures. You just watched it and played. She, as a young woman, played in the silent movie. Like, pretty impressive, right? How do I know... She did that. How do I trust that she actually did that? How do I believe? How do I have actually faith that she actually did that? I never saw her do it. And she never told me that she did it either. She never mentioned it to me. So how can I trust that she actually did it? I have no visible evidence. I don't have it from her. I believe it because I received that information from an authoritative source, namely my dad, who was her son. As he told me about it. And he, he should know. And so I believe it. I trust it. It's not based on sight, but it doesn't mean that belief is baseless. It's based on authoritative testimony. Now, why am I talking about this today? It's because I actually want to suggest to you not just that Christian faith actually has a good base. I actually want to suggest to you, I want to suggest to you that actually it is unfaith that is blind. By which I mean, I want to suggest to you actually that not having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not having faith in the God that he proclaimed, that is true blindness. What's more, I want to suggest to you that actually not having faith in Jesus Christ is actually irrational. To not have faith in him is actually irrational. So I want to sort of go on the complete offensive, if you like, and actually push that. Because I think that's what the Bible teaches is true. Now, how am I going to sort of help you convince you, uh, if I can, under God's power and spirit, that that is actually what the Bible teaches? We're going to do it by looking at the book of Isaiah. 
Now, the book of Isaiah, if you were here in the first four weeks of the year, we started looking at this uh, wonderful book in the Christian scriptures, this Old Testament book of the book of Isaiah. We're up to, I make, about chapter 28. Uh, in four talks, we managed to cover the first 27 chapters, supposedly. Uh, now we're just going to do eight chapters today. No worries, no sweat. Anyway, it'd be really helpful if you had a Bible open at this point, right? Because um, we're going to do a bit of Bible flipping through these chapters. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully you can look on with someone around you. If you can't see a Bible, I apologise. That it's, at, at times it be a fair bit of text we're going to look at. But I don't know of any other way of trying to help you actually have a sense of what's in these eight chapters that point, them, point you to them. So, if you don't have a Bible, please do come and see us at afternoon tea at the table there where the, the trolley is. Uh, come and speak to somebody there. Come and speak to... Um, Richard won't be there, but you can speak to Kiri. He's down the front. He'll wave her hands around. We will find you a Bible. We'll get you a Bible if you don't have one. Okay, let's have a look at this Isaiah 28-35. First of all, you can see some headings here on the board. Uh, uh, Judah's situation and strategy. Judah's situation and strategy. I need to take you into the text, into the history, the context of what's going on here. Let me just refresh your memories, uh, if you can't remember from earlier in the year. Here we have the nation of Judah. When are we talking? We're talking the 8th century BC. Now, if you're not a history person, you probably get confused. The 8th century actually means the 700s BC. It's all a bit wacky when you go backwards BC, but that's all right. Um, Judah, 8th century BC. In particular, we're probably looking at around the year 703 BC, give or take. Judah was the southern kingdom of the old nation of Israel. There was Israel, confusingly, Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom. By this point in time, Israel has been wiped out by Assyria. Assyria was the big superpower that dominated the whole region of the globe in this period of time. Massive superpower. There were some other significant nations around at the time, which you know, need to know about today. In particular... Over to the west was the nation of Egypt. Over to the east was the nation of Babylon. But Assyria had control. In particular, Assyria really had Babylon under the thumb and was the power that sort of dominated Egypt a bit too. Now, if you, I mean, it's hard for us to even imagine what it would be like to be living in a country under another nation's rule. It's, it's very hard for most of us to imagine what that would be like. But that is a very severe curtailing of one's freedom. And what's more, the Assyrians weren't nice taskmasters. They were evil as a, as a nation in terms of their practices and the way they treated other evil and wicked. Now, one of the things was Judah, as part of God's promised people, God's covenant people, God had made incredible promises to Judah. Namely that you, this little nation, would be the nation that all the other nations of the world would stream to. All the other nations will bow down to Judah. You can read about that in the first couple of chapters of Isaiah. But that's not what we're seeing here in the 8th century BC, is it? We're seeing actually Judah and these other nations oppressed by this mighty superpower. But Judah knows the promises. They know that they should be free and they should be top kingdom. <coughs> However, that's not the case. Now then something happens. In 705 BC... A new king arises in Assyria. His name is Sennacherib. When a new king comes into the ruling superpower, 
all the other nations who are oppressed think this might be our moment. This might be the moment for a political uprising, right? New ruler, he has to worry about the forces at home, and so, the, like the political forces at home, so this might be our option. So at this time, Babylon and Egypt both think this is the moment. If we, we, we both sort of try and rebel now, we might be able to break free out of the Assyrian yoke. Judah, do you want in on this rebellion? Do you want to join us and make a shot for freedom? Now, think about it for a moment. If you were Hezekiah, who was the king at the time, and the rulers in Jerusalem, you know the promises of God. You are to be free. This looks like a really good opportunity to go for freedom. Wouldn't it make sense to sort of throw your lot in with Egypt and Babylon and push for your freedom? Makes perfect sense. In fact, one would say, surely that is wise. That's just being politically savvy. That's just not, li- not putting your head in the sand. It's actually taking account of the real realities around you. Think, yes, this is the moment. Maybe this is the God-blessed moment for action. So this was Israel's, uh, Judah's situation and its strategy. It forms an alliance with Egypt and says, okay, we're in. But problem, problem, problem. There are three problems with this plan. Three problems. Okay, let's have a look at the text here. Let's have a see. First of all, uh, you can go to chapter 31, verses 1 to 2. 31, 1 and 2. You can see here what the Lord says. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. There's going to be a problem with going down to Egypt. At this particular point, you're not told exactly what the problem is, but you say, woe to you, which bad, woe means bad things, okay? <laughs> woe to you. This is not a good outcome, right? So let's see some of the detail of the problem. Go back to chapter 30, verses 1 to 2. 30, verses 1 to 2. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, speaking about his own people. To those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. The first problem is that this plan is not of the Lord. He says this plan is not of the Lord. No, this plan is actually a human creation. It's not of my spirit, says the Lord. That's the first problem. Second problem, this plan will actually fail. It's not going to be a success. You can see this also in chapter 30, verse 12 to 15. Chapter 30, 12 to 15. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. What's he saying? He says, this plan that you've got with Egypt is like a wall that's cracked and bulging. 
Would you walk in front of a, a wall that's cracked and bulging? No, you're thinking, that's a bad plan. That's a bad wall. <laughs> and he says, that's exactly what this wall is going to collapse suddenly. This plan will fail. So first problem, it's not of the Lord. Second problem, it's going to not work. What's the third problem? The third problem may be the worst of all. The third problem is that this plan places God's own people on the wrong side of his judgment. This plan is going to place God's own people on the wrong side of his own judgment. See this in chapter 28. Back to chapter 28, verses 18 to 22. He says, Your covenant with death... Hang on, what's that? Covenant with death? Well, the scary thing about what Judah have done is in forming a political alliance with Egypt, they have actually allied themselves with the Egyptian gods. They have actually allied themselves with the Egyptian gods. They have actually wandered away from the one true living God and actually are now back into idolatry. And so it seems to be that when Judah say we've made a covenant with death, they're referring to one of the Egyptian gods of death. We've made a covenant with death. And so the Lord says, chapter 28, verse 18, Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on. The blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work. His strange work and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. You see here what God, um, Isaiah talks about how the Lord is going to rouse himself to action as he did in two particular moments in Israel's earlier history, namely at the Valley of Gibeon and at Mount Perizim. These were two moments in Israel's history where Israel, under threat of other enemies, the Lord roused himself and brought about an incredible deliverance, magnificent deliverance. And now we're told the Lord's going to rouse himself as he did in those days, but he's going to do his work, his strange work, because he's now decreed destruction not for the enemies but for the whole land, his own land. So he's now actually going to come in astounding judgment on his own people. That's why this is strange. That's why this is alien. He's actually going to come against his own people. So that's the three problems with this plan. It's not of the Lord. It's going to fail. And it's going to place them on the wrong side of God's judgment. This is the problem. Now, two reflections on this before we move on. Two reflections. First of all, you see them up here on the board. Let's reflect on this for a moment and think, what then is true blindness? What is true blindness? Some people say faith is blind. Christian faith is blind. I'd say, looking at this particular text, trying to get into your head into what's going on here for Judah in the 8th century BC, you realise true blindness is actually rejecting the one true God and actually turning to other solutions. They, that is what is really blind. The wisdom that they were pursuing in this political alliance with Egypt is actually shown to be not wisdom at all. This is true blindness. 
Um, I have a friend who tragically has a, a terrible eye disease. It's called macular degeneration. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, my understanding of macular degeneration is what happened is she had great sight, perfect sight, for many years of her life, but then there was a, they just developed this black spot in her vision, sort of around the centre, and just over the years, it grew and grew and grew. Until now, that black spot takes almost the entirety of her vision, and all that she's left with is peripheral vision. So if I'm, look, I'm looking at you, the peripheral vision is just what I can sort of, by looking at you, sort of see, just glimpse, just on the, out, on the edges there. That's my peripheral, right out there. So you imagine living with all of that is blackness. That's all just black. And all she can see is just that little fringe. Can she see things? Yes. Can she see things even truly? Yes. Tragically, can she understand how they are related to each other? No. Can she see how these different glimpses actually make sense in reality? No. Can she see where she's going? No. I want to suggest to you the macular degeneration is what happens when you try to cut the one true living God and his son, the Lord Jesus, out of your life. When you try to cut them out, then what you are left with is a big black nothing in the middle which means that you are never actually able to make proper sense of what you see of the world because you don't see the centre. You don't see the one in whom all things cohere. You don't see the one who, through whom the whole worlds were created, the Bible says of the Lord Jesus Christ, and for whom we all exist. You, you don't see him. That is true blindness. Unfaith is blindness. Unfaith. But I think also here you start to see a picture of true wisdom. If you uh, look there in your Bibles, look at uh, chapter <coughs> 29, verse 14. 29, verse 14. You can see what the Lord says here, what he's going to do. 29, 14, he says, Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, He did not make me. Can the pot say of the potter, He knows nothing. You'll see here, this is God's, I want to suggest to you, God's public policy that continues through the ages. The supposed wisdom of going down to Egypt, he will expose as foolishness. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligence, he will frustrate. His plan will probably appear as foolishness to everybody else. What was, by the way, God's plan for Judah? You can see it in these chapters. His, uh, his plan, actually, he says, in repentance and rest will be your salvation. In trust and quietness. He just wanted them to sit still. He said, just wait. I will deliver you. Do nothing except trust me. 
Now, that doesn't look a terribly wise plan, does it? That looks foolishness. Well, what you see here is he will frustrate the wisdom of the wise and his own, what appears to be foolishness, that will be shown to be wise in the end. Now, I want to, I've said to you, I think this is actually God's ongoing public policy. Where do you see this? You see this time and time again, actually, in God's dealings with his people. But the place you see it climactically in the progressive revelation of the scriptures is, of course, in the death of Jesus, in the cross. Actually, that's where that little passage we just read from in Isaiah, that's where that is quoted in the New Testament. Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians, speaking about the very cross. He says, when the world looks at the cross, when the Jews look at the cross, it's a stumbling block to them. It makes no sense to them that the Messiah, the promised Jewish king, would die on a cross at the hands of the Romans. That's a stumbling block for them. And for the Gentiles, it's just foolishness. You worship a, a guy who was executed on a cross? That's just dumb. He says, but God's great wisdom was there at the cross. He says, to those who are perishing, it is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God there at the cross. So I say, this is actually God's public, stated, ongoing policy. He will show the wisdom of the world to be foolishness, and what they regard as foolishness will actually turn out to be his wise way. So that raises a question for you and me. If I can speak to you, if you're a Christian follower of Jesus, I want to raise a particular issue for you. The question I think then this passage in Isaiah, in the light of the cross, poses for us is this. How are you going to live? How are you going to live? See, think hard for a moment about what they did. What Judah did was they said, I know the promises of God. I know God's good intentions for me. But now I'm going to pursue those good intentions through my own means, contrary to his word. That's what they were doing, wasn't it? Pursuing God's good intentions by my own means, contrary to his revealed word. My question is, is that how you and I are going to live? Pursue God's good intentions for us, but actually by our own means, not according to his revealed word. I'll give you a counter-example, a positive example. I would go again to the cross of Jesus. It's fascinating that in the New Testament, the, the high point of uh, God's wisdom, which regarded as foolishness, is the cross. And time and time again, in the life of Jesus... Satan, the evil one, tries to dissuade him from the cross. And it's instructive when you think about how he does that. When Jesus has first been baptised, the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness and he's tempted by the evil one for 40 days, we read. One of those temptations, we're told, was where the evil one actually said to him, look, we know God's plans for you. God's plans for you is that, you know, as the Messiah, you would have all authority. Okay, I'm paraphrasing a little and fleshing it out a bit. God's plan for you is that you would have all authority on heaven and earth. Reference what Jesus says himself, Matthew 28, after his resurrection. We know God's plan is for you to have all authority in heaven and earth. But I'll tell you what, if you bow down to me now, we can shortcut the route that God has planned for you, if you and I will give you all authority, he says. I will give you that authority if only you will bow down and worship me and we can just bypass that cross. And then go a bit later in the story of Jesus. When Jesus says to Peter, so what's the word on the street out there? Who do people actually say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. And straight away Jesus says, and I have to suffer. I have to die. And Peter says, what are you talking about, man? That's not right. You're to rule. And 
Jesus' response is, Get behind me, Satan. Once again, what he's being dissuaded from is the cross. He says, no, that is not that is the plan of man, the plan of the evil one, not the plan of God. Go again. Go fast forward all the way through to Jesus actually there on the cross. Three groups of people, according to Luke's account, come up to him. There's the people, the crowd, there's the soldiers, and there's one of the thieves. All of them say to him, if you really are the Christ, if you really are this king, then come down off the cross and save yourself. That is, don't go through with this. If you're really who you say you are, you can have it all. Every single time he's been dissuaded from the cross. Every single time he's been challenged, you can have God's plans, but by your own means. You can have God's plans, but contrary to his word, in a way contrary to his word. So who are we going to be? We're going to be Judah? Or be like Jesus? You go, well, hang on, okay, I'm getting the picture, but how do I live this? Like, well, I don't understand. How do I actually, when do I face with these sort of choices? All the time. All the time. One of the things we read in these sections of Isaiah is God says of his people, they mouth the words, but their hearts are far from me. Right? You go there, there's still, there's, there's still a temple, there's still the sacrifices, there saying the Psalms, they're singing praises to Yahweh, but he says, you know what, their hearts are far from me. And the danger for us as followers of Jesus, if that's who you are, is that we mouth the words, but our hearts actually are wandering away from the one true God. And when our hearts wander away, we run to Egypt. We run to Egypt and Egypt's gods when we should be resting in the Lord. How's that work? Who's going to be your comfort? The Lord. The Lord is my comfort. So when something bad happens, I turn to retail therapy. Who's going to be my joy? The Lord. The Lord will be my joy. But there's this non-Christian who really likes me and it'd be so nice to just be in a relationship and he will be my saviour. I fear that we run down to Egypt and Egypt's gods so easily. We're pluralists at heart, I think. We want to have all the gods. And that's probably something that's worth reflecting on and thinking about more and talking about together and how we're doing that and, and trying lovingly to encourage all of us to keep on actually living for the Lord Jesus with him as our sole saviour. And what will it look like to do that? Okay, I'm going to power on. Well, this is all pretty bad. What's then the Lord's plea? What's the Lord's plea with his people of Judah? They've formed this alliance. He said, this is going to be full of problems. It's going to be bad for you. In fact, you're going to come under judgment. What's the Lord's plea? You could, you could be forgiven at this point. You're going, actually, if God sort of says, enough, time out, you're just going to... Suffer your consequences that you know from what from the actions you brought. We'd understand that. But actually that's not what God does here. And it's worth looking at that. Let's look then at this plea briefly. Uh, turn to chapter 30, verses 18, 19. Because the Lord's plea is actually, you know what? Despite everything you've done, it's not too late. Despite everything you've done, you can come back now. 
He gives them, he, he uh, shows them mercy if they want it. Come back, it's not too late. Chapter 30, verses 18 and 19. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. If you just cry out to him, even now, he will come and help you. He longs to be gracious to you. He, he rouses himself. Yes, he will come in judgment, but he actually rouses himself to be compassionate to you, if you'll have it. Or chapter 31, verse 6. Return to him. Return to him you have so greatly revolted against, O Israelites. Return to him. This really is quite incredible, I think, that the Lord is so merciful to his people. When you think about what they've done, the fact that their hearts are far from him, the fact that they've gone back into idolatry, the fact that they've deliberately refused to listen to the words of the prophets that God sent them, which you can read about in chapter 30, verses 9 to 11. They say, you prophets of God, stop talking. Shut up. Just start telling us things we want to hear. Tell us nice, pleasant things. They actively are rejecting the word of God and just... This is their state, but God says, come back to me. Come back to me, it's not too late. This is, and so I think this shows us two incredible things. Actually, before we get to that, what does it look like if they're going to come back? I think it looks like three things, three things for them to come back, according to this text. The first thing it looks like is actually having a right fear of God. So if you've got your Bible there, flip to 33, chapter 33, 5 to 6. Chapter 33, 5 to 6, I don't know if you're into memorising scripture, but uh, these are pretty good verses if you're into it, and you may probably not have really memorised them before. Chapter 33, 5 to 6. What's it going to look like if they come back to the Lord? The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. He's saying, if you come back to the Lord, what's the Lord got for you? He's got a rich store. He's just got a, a treasure house full of things. And what's it full of? Salvation and wisdom and knowledge. You think, cool, how do I get into that treasure store? The key is the fear of the Lord. Not being afraid of God in that sort of, um, oh, maybe he's going to, like, a, a fear that he's, is unsure of his character. No, it's a, it's a reverent fear that acknowledges who he is in his holiness and perfection and acknowledges your need for him. Think Isaiah 6. Go back to Isaiah's vision of the Lord. That's what we're looking at. So the first thing it looks like to come back to him is fear. The second thing it looks like to come back to him is repentance and rest, quietness and trust. That's in chapter 30, verse 15. And the third thing it looks like in chapter 33, again, verse 2, is crying out for help. Chapter 33, 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. So there's a little picture, if you like, of what it is to come to the Lord, to come to the one true living God and his son, Jesus Christ. It looks like reverent fear, an appropriate acknowledging of who he is. It looks like repentance, turning away from your false gods and actually coming to him and trusting in him. And it looks like calling out for mercy. That's what it looks like to come to him from these passages. So if we reflect on that, what is true sight? I would suggest to you true sight is actually when you have the one true living God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the centre of vision. When you fill in that black hole with the reality of the one true God. 
That's what true sight looks like. And when you truly see that, how are you going to respond? You're going to respond with right reverent fear. You're going to respond with repentance and trust. And you're going to respond with crying out for mercy because you know your need of this one. Well, then what about true character? Why have I got that there as a heading? Well, as I reflected on this and just thought, isn't this... Amazing. (laughs) As I reflected, isn't this amazing that despite what they had done, God decides to be so merciful and gracious to them? And I thought about fearing him and repenting and calling out for mercy. The bit of the Bible that came to mind was Jesus' story, actually, about the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. You know that parable? In Luke's Gospel, where two men, Jesus says, go up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, holy man, righteous man, right? He looks around, sees this tax collector over there, and he says, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. He's full of self-righteousness. Whereas the tax collector comes to the temple, he refuses to even look up to heaven, right? Because he, he has a fear of the Lord. He refuses to look up to heaven. He beats his breast because he knows he needs to repent. And he calls out, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. He cries out for mercy. There you see those three things. And you know the astounding thing that Jesus says? That that man went home justified right with God and not the other. The astounding reversal that the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, announces is that it's the one who fears the Lord, who repents, who cries out for mercy. That is the one who is right with God, who goes to home justified with God. Because God loves to show mercy on those who acknowledge their need of him. Now, I don't... I I need that mercy every day. I need it every day of my life. I can't even begin to tell you the number of ways and, and times in which I think I fail to live in right fear of God. And I fail to live... The holy life that he's called to me. I fail to embody his character in my own character and his priorities in my priorities. You know, what a treasure trove we have here in the Word of God. And can I get out of bed to read it? How patient he's been with me and can I be patient with my three-year-old daughter who refuses to eat food? <laughs> it, it's funny, but it's not when I lose my patience with her. That's not funny. That's destructive. I need his mercy every day. Praise God that he lavishes grace on us in Christ Jesus. To all who would repent, who all call out in their very need, who don't have to do anything else except call out in their need, that he loves to be merciful to us. Well, finally then, the Lord's promise. That's the Lord's plea. Come back, it's not too late. What's the Lord's promise? Well, two things which we don't have time to look at in detail, but two things he promises here. He doesn't just say come back. He says, if you come back, this is what will happen. Two things. First of all, he promises effective salvation. Effective salvation. By which he means not just, I'll actually rescue you from your enemies, in which case he says Assyria, because he says Assyria will collapse. 
not just Egypt, but Assyria will collapse. I will deliver you, but he actually promises effective salvation in the sense of a fulsome, a fulsome consummation of all of God's promises. He says, I will, I will bring all of the promises I've made to you, I will bring them all into reality. He promises an effective and complete salvation. Secondly, he promises lasting joy. And I'll finish with these words from Isaiah 35, 8 to 10. Worth looking up. Isaiah 35, 8 to 10. He says there, as part of this promise, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Here's the picture. What he's promising is lasting joy. He says, yes, you will return to Zion on a great highway, completely safe and protected, and gladness and joy will overtake you. It will swallow you up. Sorrow and sighing will flee away, and you will have everlasting joy. That is what he promises for his people who come back to him in repentance and faith. Now, has that actually happened? Did God fulfil that promise? Was there a highway? Did joy overtake them? Were they free from all their enemies? Has that ever happened? One of the great things about the Bible is that it's progressive revelation. So when you get to the New Testament, you realise you see things more sharply than, you, than Isaiah could see them, even under the inspiration of God in his day. And what we realise when we get to the New Testament is, aha, that day still is coming. It's still coming, but friends, it is coming. That is the Lord's promise. He will do it for those who have faith in his son, the Lord Jesus. Well, what then about Judah? Did they heed the plea? Did they come back? Did they claim the promises? That's chapter 36 and 37 next week. (laughs) So come back and we'll find out. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation of your character and your ways through this book of Isaiah. We thank you for the way that illuminates what you are doing for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to live in faith to you, in trust of you, and will no longer run away to Egypt and Egypt's gods. We pray so that we might bring glory to Jesus in this life that you have given to us.